Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6. Our text is going to be taken once again from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. We have been devoting uh, so far three, and this will be the final sermon from this passage in connection with our celebration of the Lord's table. And if you're joining us online, I think perhaps uh, we have more people online today than we do here. We have a lot of people that are out because they were afraid that they might have had some contact uh, during this past week, and we trust that you will be blessed as well as us as we uh, together consider the Word of God. I want to read from Galatians chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Once again, let's seek the face of God in prayer. Most blessed and gracious God, we do thank you and bless you that even in times as we find ourselves in these painful times, these difficult days, that you have not forsaken us. You have drawn near to us time after time to speak to us out of your word, We bless you for the spirit who can be with us no matter where we are, even with those that are gathering with us online. We thank you that we gather together, not only together as a body of Christ here upon earth, but also with the whole host of the redeemed in heaven as they sing praises and and bring glory unto you. And we long, O Father, for that great and wonderful day when we will be able to sing with full voice once again, And we will not have those things that hinder us and cause us fear. Especially we long for that day when, as we heard it in the scripture reading, there will be the combination of the beauty of harps and the blasting of trumpets and of voices lifted up with great jubilation. And we do pray, O Lord, that you would help us to press on in our pilgrimage until that great and glorious day. And to that end, especially help us to remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. According to the Reuters News Agency on April 28th at the 1992 Galveston County Fair and Rodeo, obviously that wasn't in the state of New York, a steer named Husker, weighing in at 1,190 pounds, was named Grand Champion. And this steer was then auctioned off for $13,500 and slaughtered a few days after the competition took place. And when the veterinarians examined the carcass, a contest official said that they found something suspicious. They discovered evidence of what is called airing. Well, to give steers a better appearance, competitors have been known to inject air into the animal's hides with a syringe or a needle attached to a bicycle pump, and pump long enough, and they've got themselves what looks like a grand champion steer. And of course, this is against the rules. So the Galveston County Fair and the Radio Association, they withdrew the championship title and also the sale money from Husker. And of course, a man that had done the whole thing had had to hang his head in shame. Well, a pumped-up steer is like a hypocrite. But he's also like the world. The hypocrite in the world, they both appear more worthy than they really are. And by way of contrast, Christ's cross is not pumped up to make it look better than it is. And among all of God's works, among all the things that have been done by our Savior, the Lord Jesus, the cross of Christ, it is, it is that which is the worthiest of all things of praise. And so in our text, Paul gives us this decisive answer. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by way of contrast, it is the world that's pumped up with a lot of air. And as 
fact, in fact, as Paul goes on to stress, it's really worse than that. He says, by Christ on the cross, at the end of the verse, verse 14, he says that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And it is this estimate of the world that's going to be the focus of our sermon this morning. And before we get to these words at the end of verse 14, I want you to allow me to remind you of what Paul has written when he penned these words earlier on in the verse. And even the two verses that precede verse 14. And in our first three sermons on these verses, we sought to answer three questions. These are in the outlines you can get on the phone or elsewhere. And because these sermons have been spaced out over a few months, I want to just quickly remind you of, by way of summary of the answers to the first three questions that we have asked concerning what Paul says here. And the first thing is, what, what did Paul refuse to boast in? In verses 12 and 13, he reiterates what prompted him to write to the Galatians. Some Jewish Christians, they had uh, these so-called Christian teachers, they had done some follow-up work on Paul's evangelistic efforts. And they believed that the basic truths of the cross and the resurrection and the tomb, the, these things were true, but they thought that Paul was missing something in his message. And they needed to add the Jewish rite of circumcision to that message. And why were they doing this? Well, at the end of verse 12, Paul says they did this only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Their fellow Jews, they didn't want to be dis have dis their disapproval and be persecuted. But then another reason Paul says that they did this is that they wanted to seem successful. At the beginning of verse 12, he says they desire to make a good showing in the flesh. And apparently they thought that the more foreskins that they collected, the more impressed people would be back in the home church at Jerusalem. And so just all like his pumped up steer, it was all for show. And regarding these externals, Paul declared, God forbid that I should boast in the cross of our, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul refused to boast in, in circumcision, in externals, and the like. And this leads us to the second question that we asked, what then did Paul boast in? Well, in verse 14, he tells us it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to his countrymen, what Paul boasted in, it seemed very strange. In the first century inhabitants of the Roman Empire, a cross was the epitome of that which was degrading and disgusting and despicable and detestable. In polite company, they would even substitute words for the cross. But instead of hiding the cross, Paul boasted in it. He gloried in it. And this leads us to ask then, what then is this cross that Paul glories in? Well, it included, for one thing, the fact of the cross. Jesus really did die upon a cross. And on that cross, he who was very God of gods and light of light, he took on himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But not only the fact of the cross, but the doctrine of the cross is included in what Paul boasts in. In this place, Paul is referring to the great biblical doctrine of the atonement, the doctrine that Christ was made sin for us, that he was offered to bear the sins of many others, and that he was offered up as a sacrificial lamb, as our substitute. And then in our last two sermons, we went on to answer a third question. Why did Paul boast in the cross? In Paul's day, there were preachers in Galatia that insisted on adding circumcision to the cross. But Paul gloried in the bare, naked cross, all stained with blood and despised by men. And why did he do this? Well, we've listed again, if you have the outlines, the seven reasons that we gave over the last couple of sermons. And I'm not going to go into details, but in the cross he saw a vindication of the divine justice, a display of God's love the basis of our justification, the marvel of divine wisdom, the door of our hope, the foundation of our assurance, and the power of our evangelism. These wonderful things he saw in the cross, and he gloried in them, he boasted in them. And this brings us now to our fourth main question as we analyze what he has said in these 
grand words of our text. What then was the effect of all this on Paul? The cross is never without influence. Wherever the cross is preached, to the one it's a aroma of death leading to death, to the other an aroma of life leading to life. But in Paul's experience, it was more than just a sweet aroma leading to life. Wherever there is the cross of Christ, there are also two other crosses. Now you remember that there were two others that were crucified with Jesus, one on each side. But here Paul tells us that it is still the case that there are two thieves crucified with Christ. And in this place, he tells us their names. And the name of the first one is the world. The world is crucified to me. And the name of of the second one is the Christian. And I to the world. So there's a crucifixion of the world. There's a crucifixion of the Christian. Self and the world are both crucified whenever Christ's cross appears and is believed in. As Timothy George has observed in this text, there is a triple crucifixion. The crucified Christ, the crucified world, and the crucified Christian. Now what is Paul saying here? He's saying this, that ever since he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, he looked upon the world as a crucified, gibbeted, crucified thing. A despicable thing which no longer holds charms for him as it once did. The world had no more power over Paul than a criminal hanging on a cross. And likewise, just as there was nothing more despised in ancient times than a murderer impaled on a cross, he was also despised. Just as he despised the world, the world now despises him. And to the world, it was as if he was a despicable felon, justly hated by everybody. The world was dead to him, and he was dead to the world. And in his typically graphic form, Martin Luther, he writes, This is Paul's manner of speaking. The world is crucified to me. That is, I judge the world to be damned. And I am crucified to the world, second thing Paul says. That is, the world again judges me to be damned. And thus we crucify and condemn one another. I abhor all the doctrine, righteousness, and works of the world as the poison of the devil. And the world again detests my doctrine and deeds and judges me to be seditious, a pernicious, a pestilent fellow, and a heretic. Well, that gives you the basic idea of what Paul is saying here. Our goal this morning is to ponder these two crucifixions and see whether these two crucifixions have taken place in our own hearts and lives. Now, we're going to spend the most of our time upon the first of these crucifixions, The world was crucified to Paul. And then briefly at the end, we will look at the other, that that Paul was crucified to the world. But first of all, I want you to think about what this means, that the world was crucified to Paul. In the same manner in which a crucified criminal was rejected and despised, the world and all that it had to offer, it was now rejected and despised by Paul. And just as a crucified criminal was cut off forever from the land of the living, Paul was irrevocably cut off from the world, and the world cut off from him. There was a severance, a a, a boundary that was established that couldn't be reversed. Now, before we take up the practical implications of what this meant, we need to identify first what Paul means here when he's talking about the world. The Greek word cosmos, or world, it has several different meanings in the New Testament. And in this place, Paul is not referring to the physical planet on which we are all living. He's not referring to that which spins around on its axis and circles the sun. That's not what he's talking about here. And nor is he speaking here of the mass of people that are on this planet, as if every person on this planet is the world. That's not what he's talking about in this place. What Paul is referring to here is a kingdom. And it's a kingdom in which the ruler and the inhabitants are lost in sin. And they are wholly at odds with everything pleasing to God. It's a rebellious kingdom. He's speaking of Satan's kingdom. He's speaking of the kingdom of darkness. And this includes everybody under Satan's rule. It includes all who live according to the standards of the world. 
The word world here, it's unredeemed humanity dominated by sin. Now, every one of us, right from, the, from our birth, all of us were part of this world. We were part of the rebellion right from the beginning. We were under Satan's power. We, we, we lived according to the dictates of the world. Writing to one of the most mature New Testament churches, Paul says to the Ephesians, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. In other words, Satan, he works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the devil, and also among those that were, who were also part of this rebellious kingdom. So Paul is speaking of humanity without God. He's speaking of their self-centered mindset, seeking their own desires. And each of us, we were born in this kingdom. We were born worldly. And by nature, we came into this world belonging to this evil world. This is our natural habitat until we're saved. The world is a, it's a realm arrayed in opposition to Christ and the church. In Psalm 2, the psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cord from us. Now, of course, they don't often say that explicitly. We, let's go have a rebellion against God today. But all their actions and all their thought patterns, it's rebellion against God. And they join together. They approve of one another in this rebellion. They're all part of the same kingdom. The world, you see, is sinful mankind en masse under the rule of the God of this world, Satan, who has blinded the minds of all who don't believe. It's a teeming multitude given to unrighteousness, hostile to the truth, Hostile to the gospel, hostile to God. And despite the great achievements of this world, the world of which Paul is speaking is lost and it's utterly incapable of saving itself. In his book, Overcoming the World, a wonderful little book, Joel Beaker, he, he writes this, The goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward to live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek after outward prosperity rather than holiness. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget him, or else they use him only for their own selfish ends. Recently, I filled out a questionnaire, a detailed questionnaire that had come to me in the mail from my representative at the New York State Assembly. And as a to do my civic duty, I thought, well, I want to fill this out. and Whatever perhaps you know, slight in, uh, impact it might have, I'll pray that God will use it. And so as much as possible, I wanted to reflect biblical principles in my responses to this detailed survey. But the nature of the questions and the options that were provided made it very difficult to do this. And, and why is this? It's because just as Dr. Beakey has noted, it's all horizontal. There's nothing there that's vertical. It was all about taxes and regulations and programs for this or that. And separate from the boxes, therefore, that I had to check off, I had to write in there something that was vertical, such as what, you know, what, what I wanted to see happen about abortion. That's a crime against God. And so even though I was constrained to fill this form out as a matter of civic duty, you see, it was very frustrating. But it shouldn't come as a surprise to me, you see, because the questionnaire it was put together with the mindset of the world. Now, what is it for the world to be crucified to us? Here, let me make it clear that Paul is not urging Christians to withdraw from the world, such as monks or such as the Amish, as they establish their own separate communities. Jesus calls us to be light in the midst of a dark world, the Sermon on the Mount. And hiding our light in a monastery or within some kind of a commune separate from the world, this, this is not being a light in the middle of the world. He also called us to be salt. Salt keeps things from getting putrid and it, keep, it preserves things. 
Christians are to have a preserving influence upon society, which is always in decay. And God has called us as Christians, therefore, to live in the world, even though we are not of the world. We must live in the world, but the world must not live in us. Now, while we continue to live in this world, we still have to be in this world. It has to be crucified to us in this sense. There needs to be a radical break between us and the world and its mentality. Prior to our conversion, we were all going down the same road. We were part of the same kingdom. We were on the broad road that leads to destruction. And we thought of worldly things. We spoke as worldly people. We spent our time and energies as the world does. But now, you see, we are to be radically different in the way we think, in the way we speak, the way we act. And when the world is crucified to the Christian, he cries out, I have wasted my life. He discovers it. Rather than overcoming the world, I have been overcome by the world. It's selfishness, it's pride, it's sensuality, it's materialism. It's all swallowed me up. And when the world is crucified to us, though, a clean break takes place with worldly friends, with worldly pursuits, with worldly habits. And like Joshua, the Christian says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. we got a new allegiance. And we will still love sinners. We will still seek their salvation. We will still befriend them, at least on a certain level. We can't make them our best friends. But our allegiance now is with Christ and with his kingdom and his people. Now what is there in our thinking that gives us this new mentality? Above all, it's the cross that does this. By the cross of Christ, Paul says, the world is crucified to me. The cross has such a powerful effect upon us that it makes the world undesirable to us now. Paul is saying the world has lost its color. It's become completely unappealing to me because Christ in the, uh, because of Christ in the cross. And as far as I'm concerned, Paul is saying they could take the whole world, they could take all of its glamour, and they could take it all away from me as long as they leave me my crucified Jesus. But having given you the basic idea of what the world is and what it is and why, the, why we, it's the cross by which that world is crucified, I want to mention several particulars. And as indicated in your outlines, when the world is crucified to us, this includes its pomp, its praise, its prudence, its piety, its pleasures, and its power. First of all, this includes its pomp. Now, whoever has by the Spirit of God seen by faith the cross of Christ, now he looks or he, she looks upon all the pomp and the glory of the world as a vain show. It's vanity fair, as John Bunyan puts it there in Pilgrim's Progress. What is left of the ruins of ancient Rome, it speaks of an empire adorned with stunningly beautiful sculptures and buildings. And one of the characteristics of the Italian Renaissance, it was the effort to restore the opulence of ancient Rome. There was this idea that we're going to bring back the glory that once was Rome. And this can be clearly seen, for instance, in the paintings, the sculptures, and the buildings of that time. And for instance, when Lorenzo de Mici, his magnificence was made visible at a tournament in 1468, the motto in ancient chivalric French. It was Luton Vrouvan. I can't say French really well anyway. Just, just tell me. I'll tell you what it means. It means time returns and the age is renewed. They were renewing the glory you see that was in ancient Rome. Now dictatorial regimes, they, they like therefore their lavish praise, their displays in front of people. And all of us have seen the Chinese and North Korean military parades on our televisions. We can see that their missiles come through on these big trucks. They have their tanks, their planes, as well as huge blocks of soldiers that are all marching down the road like this. And they're all in this lock arm step and kicking their feet up like this. And you know what I'm talking about. It's, It's quite impressive to actually see how perfectly choreographed the whole thing is. And it's all calculated to make a deep impression, you see. It's calculated to show forth glory of that particular kingdom. 
But to us who have had a sight of the glory of our crucified Savior, all this pomp is a vain show. And what are all the silks and what are all the furs and the jewelry and the golden crowns? What are these things compared to the glory of our Redeemer? It's no more impressive to us than the jumpsuit that's worn by one that's going to his execution. What are all the expensive and stylish dresses that are worn on the red carpet at the Oscars? What do we think about those, those, those dresses? They spend thousands and thousands upon them. They mean no more to us than the dresses on the rack of a used clothing store. It's no more oppressive to us. The world's glitter, it's darkness as soon as the sun of righteousness shines forth from the tree. And what do we care for all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory once we have seen the spiritual glory of our thorn-crowned Lord Jesus? Everything on earth grows dull in the presence of the light of the cross. A 20,000 square foot mansion with a pool in the backyard and a Lexus and a Mercedes in front and a boat in the garage. All of this, it means nothing to us now. We're not impressed. It doesn't, it doesn't capture our affections. The pomp of the world is rejected. It's crucified to us. But secondly, the world's praise is also crucified to us. When the world is crucified to us, we don't look for its commendation anymore, its approval. We've learned not to do that. We mistakenly do sometimes, and we, we get bit for it. John's description of the world in 1 John 2 includes this phrase, the pride of life. Having seen the glory of Christ, if we happen to turn on, for instance, the Oscars or the Emmys, maybe we're channel surfing and we, were, we made the mistake of stumbling upon such a thing, a few minutes of listening to these preening actors and actresses heaping praises on one another, it just makes us feel like throwing up. We, we, we can't take it anymore. We've got we to gotta watch something different. And as much as I enjoy a good ball game, I can't stomach some players thumping their chests and talking afterwards of what they had done and how wonderful it was. Dear brothers and sisters, why should we ever crave such praises from such arrogant sinners? Paul didn't expect the world to be pleased with him because it wasn't pleased with his Savior. It instead it mocked his Savior. It crucified his Savior. It despised his Savior. They crucified my master, Paul says. They crucified the Lord of glory. Why then should I bow and scrape in order to get their smiles, to get their approval? Shall I crave a standing ovation for my musical performance? Shall I want recognition for my scholarship? A recognition for my home decorating skills? If I'm looking for these things, I'll repent of it as, as folly, as foolishness. Because the friendship of the world, the approval of the world is enmity with God. As Spurgeon put it, mouths that spit on Jesus shall give me no kisses. The world's praise is crucified to us. But then thirdly, the world's prudence is also crucified to us. And here I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. In their marvelous wisdom, men crucified the only one by whom they might be delivered from eternal suffering. And when they did this, they showed their folly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following the apostle says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, and to the, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom 
of God. Now, as I said a moment ago, in their marvelous wisdom, they crucified the only one that, was, that had come to save them. That's really smart. Somebody's come to deliver you from eternal damnation, so you get rid of that person. That's not a wise move. Killing the Messiah, this was the fruit of the so-called wisdom of the scribes. Remember, these scribes, they made their living studying the Old Testament and all the prophecies of the, of the, uh, that testified to the humiliation and death of the Lord Jesus. That was their wisdom, to crucify the one that they had been studying about. And what was the ripe fruit of the thinking of the Sadducees? It was joining in with those that killed the Messiah. And therefore, shall we be more impressed by the so-called wisdom of liberal theologians today? Shall we be impressed with all their questions about the Bible and how maybe it isn't quite so true here or there? It is, it's something that they do, just like the Sadducees, just like the Pharisees did. They continue to crucify afresh the Lord of glory by their criticisms of what he says in his word. And it's the wisdom of postmodern thinkers today to scatter doubt, to deny certainty about things. And for thousands of years, men have been inviting, inventing one philosophical system after another, each thought to be, more, to, to be superior to the last one. And shall we suppose that in their wisdom they got it right now? What about today's woke culture? In its hoary-headed wisdom, the world is telling us now that if you have an eight-year-old girl that wants hormones or even surgery to permanently, permanently change who she is, or she wants to be a boy, or if a boy wants to be a girl, we've got to permit it, and we've got to bless it, and, and condemn me anybody that raises any question about that, is that because that person, that little boy, that little girl has, has feelings. And someday people are going to look back on the 20th century wisdom and they're going to say, those people went raving mad. But in today's wokeness, those who have gone the furthest in their credulity, they are admired for their progressive thinking. They're the wisdom ones. They're the wise ones, the progressive ones. And God has poured contempt on the wise men and women of this world. Their foolish hearts are blinded. They grope at noonday. As Christians, dear people, we must also be aware of turning for help to therapists that approach problems from the world's point of view. We're depressed or we have uh, some other difficulty. I would warn you about going to worldly psychologists. Far too often, psychologists, they advocate self-reliance rather than reliance on God's word. They want to make you feel better about yourself. That's their goal. Self-esteem instead of repentance. And this wisdom, it's, it's crucified to us. The world's prudence is included in the list of things that are included in the cross. But then in the fourth place, the world's piety must also be crucified to us. And here I'd like you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. The world, in Galatians 6.14 it also includes everything outside of Christ in which men place their trust. Not the least of which are those things in which they place their religious trust. And for Paul, above all, it was his former piety that was crucified to him. That was the thing that was the hardest for him. Because he thought it was the best thing about him before. Previously, there was nothing about himself that he admired more about his own self than his former religious zeal as a Jew and as a Pharisee. He tells the Philippians that there was nobody who had more grounds for confidence in the flesh than he, because he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And then he says, in contrast to all those things that he once admired about himself and put his trust in, he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Dear people, it was the world's religion that crucified Jesus. The priests were at the bottom of it. The Pharisees urged it on. And nothing kept the Jews from the Lord Jesus more than their trust in their many religious ceremonies, their phylacteries, their tasseled garments, their tithes, their long prayers, their fastings, all these things. They thought they were, they were really wonderful because they did all these religious things. But once Paul saw by faith the crucified Lord Jesus, all these things became dead to him. They were like a pile of rubbish to him now. And even so, once you view the crucified Lord Jesus by faith, you see the Son of God as the only sufficient payment for sin. You will look upon impressive cathedrals. You will look upon religious pageantry. You will look upon man-made forms of piety. You will look upon all the prayers, all the things that you've done of a religious nature that, that you think are, is, are pleasing to God. You will look upon them as poor, tawdry things to be rejected in order that you might have the Lord Jesus and what he did in him alone. By his cross, the world's piety is also crucified to us. And then fifthly, the world's pleasures must also be crucified to us. More broadly, the world's pursuits. Some run after honor, some toil after learning, some labor after riches. Some pursue the pleasures of the world. But to Paul, all of their pursuits were just trifles once he had seen Christ on the cross. Spurgeon says, he that has seen Jesus die will never go into the toy business. He puts away childish things. A child, a pipe, a little soap, and many pretty bubbles, such as the world. The cross alone can wean us from such play. It's not that God is against pleasure. He's given us a lot of pleasure. He's just against our wasting our affection upon such inferior forms of pleasure. You know how it is. We... Our little children, they, they, they walk into a store and they've got one of these little things you put a couple quarters in and you get a little toy. Now, we, we want to teach our children this is really a waste of 50 cents. If you save it up, you can get something that's really worth something. And yet they really want it, you see. Their heart goes after it. They're, they're satisfied with it. It's, it's, it's a little toy that they want, you see. And they don't realize that it's going to be stepped on and broken tomorrow and it's going to be put in the garbage soon. And so it is with us. We need to be aware of those things that take us away from the Lord Jesus and the pleasures that they offer, the, the inferior nature of those pleasures. In 1 John 2.16, John includes in his description of worldliness the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Faith in a suffering, dying Savior, it's inconsistent with loving a world that delights in the lust of the flesh. God has given us holy pleasures, richly to be enjoyed. We can, in a holy sense, stand by the edge of the ocean and watch the waves crash in upon the shore and find great pleasure in what God made. We can find great pleasure in gazing on the mountaintops as the sun goes down, listening to one of our favorite symphonies, and maybe better than all these things, having your little girl run up to you and give you a big hug. These are pleasures, you see, that, that God has, has given us, that, that we enjoy. They're, they're precious to us. But even these earthly joys, these are to be enjoyed in such a way as to expand our enjoyment of God. And above all, there are pleasures that are especially centered in God. David concludes the 16th Psalm with these words, You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is there anything that's ever given you eternal pleasure in this world that you've never gotten tired of? It's the Lord. It's the Savior. It's this one who died for us. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But our flesh, it craves that which is outside the boundaries that God has set for pleasure. And it's not that God is against pleasure. 
What he's against is seeking for pleasures that violate his word. Seeking pleasures that take our hearts away from him. And the illicit pleasures that the world offers, they include many things, and I could spend a lot of time going into this, but such things as the excesses of overeating, excessive drinking, indulgence in mind-altering drugs, engaging in intimacies that are to be reserved for marriage. These excesses, these, these pleasures found outside of God's boundaries, the Bible repeatedly warns against these excesses and these perversions. And we're not to be brought under the power, the bondage of anything. But instead, we are to exercise self-control about these things. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 6. And the prohibition against the lust of the flesh especially forbids immorality in all of its forms. It forbids any flirtation or physical intimacy out of marriage. It calls us also to take care lest immodesty cause someone else to stumble and to encourage that person to lust. And Paul says we're, we're not to love the lust of the flesh anymore. And then, or I should say John, and John also adds not only to the lust of the flesh, but he goes on to speak of the lust of the eyes. These are companion sins. Satan works very hard to get us to defile our hearts by what we see. Just as he tempted our first parents to suspect their creator was hard and unbending, he whispers to us concerning a movie that arouses our sinful desires by what we see others doing on the screen. Well, God doesn't want you to be ignorant of what's going on in the world, you think? Are you supposed to, are you supposed to be just an ignoramus? You've got to know what's going on here. Or maybe he says, it's only a hard legalistic God, you see, that would deny you the enjoyment of what is, for the most part, a really good story. And more than any other generation before us, we are tempted to view videos through Amazon Prime or look at images on the Internet that defile our hearts. And such entertainment makes adultery look innocent, even exciting. Profanity is used as everyday speech. And you and I, we must not trust our fleshly strength to resist and overcome the temptation of being dragged further and further and further into sin. It's the lust of the eyes. It begins with the eyes. Flee the lust of the eyes. Practice self-denial. Follow Paul's example. Here and I ex exercise myself always to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Well, time doesn't allow me to elaborate concerning another aspect of the world that needs to be crucified. I want to just briefly say a few things about that also we crucify its power. You know, frequently those that have power, they abuse it. You think of Diotrephes in the early church. He wanted to have the eminence, and so he kicks everybody else out that's in his way. An abusive pastor. He's abusing his power. There's the overbearing foreman or the overbearing boss. It's, there's the abusive husband, the abusive father. Sometimes there can be a wife that is manipulating and, and uh, abuses power, so to speak, in a different way. And politics especially provides power-hungry people with opportunities to tell other people what to do. And some people, they seem to, to delight in making all these new edicts that we're seeing around our country. There's, there's a little, they've got a little power, and, they, and they, they like to exercise their power. And we've been getting our fill of all this brutal, brutal political strife that's been going on in our country lately. This power struggle that goes on year after year, and especially is boiled over, as it were, in recent months. And as Christians... We're easily tempted to imagine that if only we get our people in there, everything's going to be better. And maybe God is letting us go through this national misery to teach us this lesson, that deliverance is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4.6 The world wants political power to get its way. But apart from a mighty work of the Holy Spirit, our country will degenerate more and more. And so the power of the world, you see, also must be crucified to us. But we have seen that included in the world that is to be crucified to us is its pomp, its praise, its prudence, its piety, its pleasures, and its power. 
And how is this world crucified to us? Our text tells us it's crucified to us by the power of the crucified Lord Jesus. That's how it's put to death. It's by looking away from ourselves. It's by looking away from our weakness to his strength. How did Moses choose to suffer affliction with the people of God? As Hebrews 11 teaches us. How did he choose to suffer this affliction rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin? Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. How does the writer to the Hebrews say the biblical heroes of ancient days endure their stonings and their burnings and their drownings and tortures and other persecutions? How do they do this? He tells us it was by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when you're tempted with the temptations of the world and into the ways that we've discovered, we've spoken about this morning, ask yourself, Shall I do this great wickedness and sin against the cross of the Lord Jesus? This is what he did to deliver me from this sin. And shall I sin against that? Confess with the Apostle Paul, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me. So when you're tempted with the pomp and praise of the world, sing with Isaac Watts, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. We celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly. And we do this because it regularly brings us back to looking at the crucified Lord Jesus. A homely person who looks at a beautiful object still is homely. It doesn't transform that person just looking at that beautiful object. But a believer looking at the beautiful Lord Jesus is transformed into the image of Christ. It's an amazing thing, a spiritual thing that takes place. As Beeky puts it, faith that looks at a bleeding Christ produces a bleeding heart. Faith that looks at a holy Christ produces a holy life. Faith that looks at an afflicted Christ produces sanctified affliction. We spent our time looking at the way the world was crucified to Paul. But now more briefly, I want to have you notice with me that he was also crucified to the world. And just as Paul came to have a contempt for the world, the world came to have a contempt for Paul. The world, it had now rejected him. And it did this, the same world that accepted him at one time. And why did it do this? It's because the world recognized that he no longer belonged to it, as he once did. He wasn't on their side anymore. He was on the side, formerly he was on the side of people that wanted to kill Christians. People that wanted to bring them to the judgment and so forth and get rid of them. He was on their side, you see, but the world had been taken out of his heart. And the world now recognizes that the world is not in Paul anymore. And those to whom the world is not crucified, they're not true believers. And likewise, those that have, have, who are not crucified to the world, those whom the world loves, those whom the world honors, they have caused to question their faith. At one time, Paul was popular with the Christ-hating Jews. But as soon as they realized that he was identified himself with the crucified one, immediately they hated him and tried to kill him. As Luther puts it, the world not only judges of the Christians that they are wretched and miserable men, but also most cruelly, and yet as it thinks with true zeal, it hates, persecutes, condemns, and kills them as the most per pernicious plagues of the spiritual and worldly kingdom. That is to say, like heretics and rebels. But they do not suffer these things for murder, theft, or any other such wickedness, but for the love of Christ. But when these persecutions, they come to us, Jesus tells us that we ought to rejoice because they testify that we are his children. 
By them we have the privilege of sharing in the sufferings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his book that I've quoted from a few times in this sermon, a wonderful book on overcoming the world, Bickey, Joel Bickey tells us of a time that he met uh, Dr. Peter Hammond in South Africa. And he says, he told me that every time he preaches in Sudan, he expects to be arrested and persecuted. And when pressed for details on how he was persecuted, Dr. Hammond said he had experienced minor persecution, such as having his head submerged in a pail of urine until he was forced to drink it, or having a bag tied around his head at the neck until he fainted from lack of oxygen. That's nothing compared to what the Lord experienced, he quickly added. We Christians must count it all joy when we are persecuted for Christ's sake. Now, most of us don't have those kinds of persecutions. We might suffer in other ways. But if we're to overcome the world, we can't expect to be the friends of the world in the same sense. We can be we need to be nice to them, courteous to them, gracious, and on a certain level be friends with people that we work with and be gracious to them. Jesus was a friend of sinners, let's remember. But it didn't mean that Jesus became like those sinners, began to talk like those sinners, and began to be accepted in every way by those sinners. And as John tells us, worldly people that hate Christ, they will always hate his disciples. And so the apostle here, he tells us that he was... The world was not only crucified to him, but he was crucified to the world. May the Lord help us as we gather now around the table to meditate upon these things, to gaze upon our Savior, that he might be the one who would capture our hearts in such a way that especially the first part of our sermon would be true, that the world more and more would be crucified to you and to me. And if you're here and you don't, you're not saved. You're part of the kingdom. It's, it's damned. It's condemned. It's, it's not going to go well for you. And you need to turn from the world and turn to this one who died to deliver people from the pleasures and from the pomp and from the pride of the world and make them the humble disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him. Call upon him to be your savior. Do so even today. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us these remarkable words that were penned long ago by the Apostle. And we do thank you for his example, his willingness to suffer, his willingness to come out from the world and be separate, his willingness to be identified with the poor, humble cause of the Lord Jesus. And may we imitate the Apostle Paul as he imitated Christ. May the cross be held before us day by day. And even as we now celebrate the Lord's table, may it especially be precious to us. But may it be remembered by us even in the coming days until we come again and celebrate this precious ordinance once again. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, for we stray from you. We wander. Our hearts grow cold to you. Have mercy, we pray, on those that are still in the world, that are part of the world, those in this room this very day, O oh Lord, we pray that such ones would be brought out of that kingdom into the kingdom of the Son of your love. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.
Well, as we gather together to remember our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and what he did for us, I want to just for the sake of any of you that are visiting with us today to let you know of the policy that we have. We ask that people meet two, two qualifications to actually participate by participating in the elements. And the most important is that you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus. You are, like Paul says, you, you're crucified to the world. And uh, you have joined Jesus, his key team, so to speak. You have repented of your sins. You've trusted in him for and his death on the cross to be the payment of your sins. But the second thing is that we also ask that you be a, a member in good standing of a gospel-preaching church, not necessarily this one, but one that preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says in verses 23 and 24, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus speaks in advance of what is about to take place, the awful suffering in body even, but also of soul that he was about to endure. But the visible thing was his body being torn apart by the whips and the scourges and the nails and the crown of thorns. And we are reminded of what he suffered for us, and we are to remember what he suffered for us. And especially may it be so that as we do remember today, we do so remembering the cross in such a way that we will turn from the world and follow the Lord Jesus Christ more and more. I invite you to take your hymnals and turn with me to hymn number 186. We've sung this recently, but it's one of the most grand hymns, perhaps the greatest hymn ever written. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Hymn number 186. Yeah. 
Let us give thanks for the broken body of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Most blessed Heavenly Father, it is hard for us to understand how you could have loved us so much that you would do to your Son what took place on that awful day when he died for us. It is hard, Lord Jesus, for us to understand the love that you showed to us and enduring the darkness and the blackness and the suffering of that day. But dear Lord Jesus, dear Father, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you for what took place that we might be saved from our sins. And for that which has also broken the ties that we once had with the world. How we thank you for redeeming us from this world that's perishing, about to be destroyed. Help us not to live like that world, but to live as an example to that world and as those that bear testimony to that world. Help us even now to be fortified in our faith as we now participate in the bread that we eat together. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Let us now eat the token that we have here in remembrance of our Lord and Savior and his precious body. Let's eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. I'd like to ask Mr. Gaza if you would please to lead us in thanksgiving for the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Father, may it never be Remembrance of the sufferings of the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us now together drink. I want us to close by singing a hymn that we don't sing very often. It's hymn number 215. Before we sing it, I want to just point out some of the significant words in connection with what we've just preached hymn number 215. We celebrate in the first place the fact that the Savior that suffered and died is in glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow, stanza one. And we say, we sing in stanza two, the highest place that heaven affords is his, is his by right, the King of kings and Lord of lords and heaven's eternal light. And then it directs us to the fact that This one who now is glorified, this one who was humiliated, is the joy of all that are above. God wants us to have pleasure. He wants us to have fullness of joy. The joy of all who dwell above, the joy of all below, to whom he manifests his love and grants his name to know. To them the cross with all its shame, with all its grace is given. Their name is an everlasting name, the joy, their joy, the joy of heaven. In number 215.
The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's crown. The highest place that heaven affords is his, is his by right. The King of kings and Lord of lords and heaven's eternal mind. The joy of all who dwell above, the joy of all behold, to whom he manifests his love and go forth from this place as those who have been redeemed, those who bring glory and boast in one thing alone, and that is a Savior who died for us. May the Lord help us to be salt and light in the midst of darkness. You're dismissed.